If you're enjoying History Extra Long Reads, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thank you for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to History Extra Long Reads where we take a deep dive into the past, bringing you the very best of BBC History magazine with fascinating articles from leading historical experts. The image of plucky warriors sending a cocksure English army into flight has secured Bannockburn's status in the annals of Scottish history. Today's long read, written by public historian Helen Carr, chronicles how the 1314 clash transformed the balance of power between two warring nations. Today's feature originally appeared in the September 2023 issue of BBC History magazine and has been voiced in partnership with the Royal National Institute of Blind People. In June 1314, a great army rumbled forwards, parallel to the River Forth, following the old Roman road that led north across the war-ravaged Anglo-Scottish border. The King of England, Edward II, rode at the head of an army of around 18,000 infantry and 2,000 heavy cavalry horses. A baggage train, allegedly 20 miles long, groaned under the weight of arms, plate, food and wine, and the administrative paraphernalia associated with the management of the crown, including England's Great Seal. The army was marching to relieve Stirling Castle, an English-held bastion 40 miles northwest of Edinburgh, that was under siege by Edward Bruce, brother of the self-proclaimed King of the Scots, Robert. Edward II was a king in a hurry. Should the Scots capture Stirling, he would lose access to the north of Scotland, and with it his grip on the land, his father Edward I, the self-styled Hammer of the Scots, had conquered at the outbreak of war in 1296. And so, he had mustered an army in Berwick-on-Tweed, the English administrative centre in the north, and marched in haste. The knight, Sir Thomas Grey, rode towards Stirling that day, and forty years later his son, also Sir Thomas Grey, would record his father's account of the battle in his book, Scala Chronica. As the English marched north, Robert the Bruce prepared for combat. He allocated commanding roles to loyal soldiers such as James Douglas, otherwise known as Black Douglas, possibly for his black hair, but most likely for the fact that he'd raided, torched and pillaged his way across the northern frontier. Together they trained five to six thousand infantry to use spears as offensive weapons in shiltrons, hedgehog formations of razor-sharp steel that would push forward into attack against oncoming cavalry. These became the greatest weapon of the wars of Scottish independence, a fighting machine that could destroy a cavalry army. The English army paused its advance on the 23rd of June, just a few miles from Stirling Castle, and debated where to camp, while the vanguard rode ahead carefully to assess the terrain. 
Having spent much of the war so far pursuing evasive Scottish rebels, the English were eager to fight, but had no decisive plan on how to do so. A leading nobleman in the vanguard was Henry de Bowen. As the army reached the surrounds of Stirling Castle, he spurred his warhorse to the top of the north bank of a steep burn ahead, hoping to achieve a wide view of the field below. There he spied the shadows of men in the distance half concealed in the woods. Addressing them was a man on a small grey horse, darting across the line, wearing a helmet ensconced with a gold circlet, the symbol of a king. The man was Robert the Bruce, and he was an open target. To kill or capture the Scottish king would end the war before the battle had begun. Fired up by youthful ignorance, bravery, and the pursuit of chivalric glory that ran through the veins of the nobility, Henry de Bowen lowered his lance and charged. Bruce was fast to act. At the moment of contact, he spun his horse to one side, stood high in his stirrups and hurled his great axe down on Henry de Bowen's head, crushing his helmet and his skull in one brutal blow. Ignited by this episode, the Scots roared into action and encountered the oncoming English vanguard, who, according to Thomas Gray, charged into the thick of the action. The result was a bloodbath with the English cavalry forced onto the Scottish spears before they could halt their advance. The English front line was blooded, and important prisoners taken, including Thomas Gray. Robert the Bruce now ordered his army to wait, spending the night concealed in thick woodland. The English, in need of a camp, manoeuvred into an appalling position, down a steep ridge next to the River Forth. The land was evil, deep wet marsh, flanked by the river and two streams, the Pell Stream burn and the Bannock burn behind. As dawn broke the following morning, Midsummer's Day, Edward's army found itself far from ready to do battle. Where Robert the Bruce and his commanders were united, the English king had filled his commanding ranks with men who wavered in loyalty, disaffected by Edward II's penchant for favourites such as Piers Gaveston. According to the author of the Vita Edwardi Secundi, a fairly reliable chronicle of Edward II's life, Gilbert de Clare, Earl of Gloucester, the king's nephew, led the calls for the king to change his battle tactics. Gloucester pushed Edward for patience, particularly given the bloodbath of the previous day. This proved wise counsel, as the tired, demoralised army were struggling to orient themselves. Edward scorned the Earl's advice and grew very heated with him, even questioning his loyalty. At this, Gloucester spat back, Today it will be clear that I am neither a traitor nor a liar. The first engagement of the battle that would be named after the nearby Bannockburn was between the archers. Following an exchange of arrows, the cavalry holding twelve-foot-long lances, axes or maces, and swords, lined up to advance, pushed tightly together by the rivers on either side. The Scots were arranged into three shiltrons, a thick-set hedge. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
The cavalry charged first, and on impact, knights were flung from their horses, impaled by Scottish spears. Scottish axes slammed down on armoured knights as they fell to the ground. The result was a massacre. The Earl of Gloucester, not recognised by his arms for ransom, was butchered on the pikes of the Scots. The English cavalry became a bloodied blockade for the infantry, whose attack only added to the confusion. Archers hurried to the north side of the battle to rain arrows onto the Scottish flank, only to be cut down by Scottish horsemen. The Lanacost Chronicler, writing from a priory near Hadrian's Wall, related that Edward II fled from the battlefield with only a handful of knights, like miserable wretches for Dunbar Castle. He added that Edward left all the others to their fate. A great crowd of knights, six hundred other mounted men, and one thousand foot fled in another direction towards Carlisle. More knights were captured, mostly at Bothwell Castle, a turreted military stronghold with a ninety-foot round keep built on a steep bank over the River Clyde. The Lanacost chronicler noted that certain knights were captured by women, but does not name them. The Scots took as many high-ranking prisoners as they could find, accruing or killing at least fifty English knights with many more captured. Peter Chichester, the former household clerk of Edward I, Robert de Grendon, Sheriff of Glamorgan in Wales, and John Hazelrig, a northern knight, were all captured and held in Scotland until their ransoms could be paid by members of their family or by appeal to the king. Another captive, John Seagrave, who had been paid generously to dispatch the body parts of national hero William Wallace around Scotland and England, was personally ransomed by the king. Roger Northborough, the keeper of the Privy Seal and the most important administrative person in the realm, was captured along with the Great Seal itself. Robert Baston, a friar who was employed to accompany the troops to Bannockburn to record their victory in ink, was another of those to be taken captive. He was ordered by Robert the Bruce to rewrite the tale of Bannockburn in exchange for his freedom. His surviving account discusses how soldiers were up drinking the night before the battle, suggesting the defeat was due to a collection of raging hangovers. Across England, chroniclers were left aghast at the defeat at Bannockburn, and none could explain it. Some called it a moral reckoning, a punishment on Edward II for pillaging Scottish monasteries on his way to Stirling. Others blamed the absence of major English noblemen such as Thomas of Lancaster, who had refused to participate in the battle due to his disaffection with the king's regime. The Vita chronicler compared the outcome at Bannockburn to the travesty of the Battle of Courtrai in 1302, in which the French had lost their fighting elite to a less experienced army of local Flemish militia. Few doubted that the loss of noblemen at Bannockburn would have a devastating impact on England's political landscape and its security. For the Scots, there would be no such soul-searching. Bannockburn revolutionised their position in the Anglo-Scottish War and for a time bought them independence. At Cambus Kenneth Abbey in November 1314, before a packed parliament of Scottish nobles and clergy, Robert the Bruce smoked out his enemies in Scotland. He produced a statute proclaiming, 
all who died outside the faith and peace of the said Lord King in the war or otherwise, should be disinherited perpetually of lands and tenements and all other title within the Kingdom of Scotland. This document forced every elite member of the realm to either attest their allegiance to Bruce or be stripped of their land, wealth and titles. Families were split by allegiance. Ingram de Umfreville defected to the Scottish side, whereas his cousin, Robert de Umfreville, Earl of Angus, remained steadfastly loyal to the flailing Edward II. Philip de Mowbray, the seemingly loyal custodian of Stirling Castle, also defected, choosing to side with Robert the Bruce. Until Bannockburn, the border between England and Scotland had been porous. Noble families held land on both sides of the border, Scot, married Englishwoman and vice versa. The statute of Cambus Kenneth divided the two nations with a greater severity than had been witnessed for decades. Yet that didn't stop Scottish raiders crossing the border with increasing frequency. With major northern barons, such as Robert Clifford, the Warden of the Marches, killed or captured at Bannockburn, the north of England was now left unprotected. Without this level of defence in place, Robert the Bruce exploited his advantage to the full, leading punitive raids as far south as Pontefract, burning property, stealing cattle and resources and destroying crops, a cruel method of war during a time of famine. But Robert the Bruce's ambitions didn't end in northern England. In fact, they extended over the water to Ireland. Irish leaders were reinvigorated by the Scottish victory, inspiring Donal O'Neill, King of Tyrone, to offer the High Kingship of Ireland to Edward Bruce. This display of Gaelic unity was fired by an ambition to oust English conquerors from Ireland and achieve national independence in the same manner as the Scots had at Bannockburn. For the English, Bannockburn provided the harshest of lessons in martial failure poor leadership and the importance of unity. The battle exposed the weaknesses of Edward II, and those failings pitched a rattled, divided nation into a civil war that in the second half of the 1320s would lead to the king's deposition and murder. When Edward II's son, Edward III, ascended the throne in 1327, he set about uniting his barons and forming a successful English fighting force. He was, it seems, desperate not to repeat his father's mistakes. Bannockburn was one of Scotland's greatest military victories, and as a result has largely been preserved in Scottish historical memory. Yet it had profound consequences for England, Scotland and even Ireland across the first half of the 14th century and beyond. It was a battle that changed the face of three nations. Today's long read was written by Helen Carr. Helen is a public historian specialising in medieval history. Her books include The Red Prince, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. Thanks again to the Royal National Institute of Blind People for their help voicing this article, which first appeared in the September 2023 issue of BBC History magazine.